Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, this week on the Righteous Remnant Podcast, we're going to be talking about deconstruction. Um, deconstruction is you know, the term that many Christians are using today to say that they're starting to deconstruct some of the main truths that they were taught um, and to break them down and to see if they're really true, okay? Something like that, meaning they're starting to question core things that they were taught in their youth that the rest of their faith has been built on, all right? That's the process of deconstruction. So a lot of times, deconstruction is really kind of a synonym for leaving the faith, okay? But I want to be clear that not all people that use that term are using it in that sense. Um, a lot of them are using it in the sense of, you know, I'm I'm recognizing that some of the core things that I was taught I don't think are correct anymore, and so now I'm kind of restructuring my faith in a way that's more solid, okay? I want to give the benefit of the doubt for a number of people who use that term because they're not intending to leave the faith, but it does mean they're in a season of, like, questioning where things are unstable, right? So I think it's fair to say that when people f- say or they you know, express the sentiment that they're in a season of deconstruction or something like that. Yeah, I, I think there are some, you know, concerns, some worries about that, and admittedly so, because, you know, they're they're questioning core truths, um, and so it, it is kind of a dangerous time for many believers. But at the same time, I think I can also say that it could be a very beneficial time, right? Because if some of those, you know, core doctrines that you assumed were true for a long time but were not, and you reanalyze them and break them down, and then you arrive at a more truthful, more biblically-centered understanding, correct biblical interpretation, um, then that's a very healthy and wonderful thing. Okay, So I don't want to say that the process of deconstruction is always a, a negative. It's not. Um, but you know, many of the believers who have departed from the faith, um, who are no longer Christians today, We'll use that that terminology that, yeah, I went through a time of deconstruction, and it resulted in them no longer believing in the claims of Christ, okay? All right, I want to talk about this because I've been digging into a number of these narratives um, recently. There's obviously a lot of narratives um, and I, you know, I first became kind of aware of the kind of the growing popularity of, of deconstruction um, a couple of years ago. And what I, where it started for me is I, I started to notice that a number of prominent Christian musicians were saying things um, that, you know, today we would call deconstruction. Not all of them used that terminology back in the day, but now I think most of them do or would. Um and it was things like, I remember um, Marty Sampson, who was the worship leader for Hillsong United, their youth band. And, um, you know, he was extremely, he was probably the most famous worship leader in the world at one point in the 90s when I was a young man um, or the early 2000s. Um, he released a statement on social media saying something to the effect of, you know, why is it that science is always disproving the Bible? Why is it that God is, you know, sending all these people to hell? And he said this really interesting phrase at the end of that statement. He said, and nobody ever talks about it. <laughs> I remember I read that and I was really kind of surprised by that statement because at least in the, the California climate that I grew up in, it seemed like people talked about that all the time. Um, 
but I, I guess I, I can understand, you know, if you're really in the church world and you're in a world like Mark Sampson was, which is, you know, a very large megachurch where that's probably your world. And absolutely you can get kind of these subcultures and churches where maybe stuff like that is never really questioned. And, um, and I can, I actually, I, I do understand that. I do understand that. Um, because yeah, not everybody's going to university of California and having to deal with all the accusations that get thrown at you all the time when you're in that type of environment. I, I can, I can definitely understand that. Um, but anyways, he was just one of them. And there were a number of these musicians, Audrey Assad, who was a Catholic, um, not a worship leader, but she was a Catholic musician who um, had a, a number of really wonderful songs I really liked. Um, Kevin Max from DC Talk. <laughs> so, you know, DC Talk was kind of like, you know, the rap group and the you know, the Christian rap group of the 80s and 90s. They were really big. And, um, you know, I grew up listening to some of their stuff and, you know, they, they had some good albums. They got, well, I was never really into rap, but they, you know, they started getting more into alternative rock rap, like a Linkin Park type <laughs> of thing. Sorry, I'm not doing a good job of describing it. Um, they had some good stuff um, that I enjoyed, but yeah, Kevin Max, who was kind of like the main singer of that group, um, I think he came out and said that he's no longer a Christian. But it was a, there were a number of these high-profile Christian worship leaders and musicians, and um, and I remember thinking like, wow, this is um, kind of interesting that so many of them are publicly saying these things at the same time. And um, I'll be honest, like for me, Christian music was a very big industry. I'm sure it still is. I'm sure it's a, a big industry. But one of the things that I've really, really, really appreciated is that it seems to me like in the past 15 years or so, the industry has really shifted to worship, which I really appreciate. Because um, I remember, you know, I remember in the 2000s, um, I was pastoring at the Ark, but I was also um, doing worship um, professionally at another church. They were paying me just to do worship. And I remember that they brought in some producer who worked in the Christian music industry. And we had a chance to talk with him, the band. And I, I forget who asked it, but somebody asked him, you know, what do, what do you think that we as a Christian worship band, what do you think we should really be focused on? Like, how can we get better? And, um, you know, I remember he communicated, he was like, you know, what, what I want to see Christian bands is I, I essentially want to see you know guitarists have practiced so much that they are amazing. He didn't put it like that, but that was the gist of what he was saying. You know, super skilled. And I remember kind of hearing that answer and you know listening to the rest of the conversation. And I'll be honest, I the way I felt is I felt like this guy has no clue. <laughs> That that sounds really mean <laughs> saying that out loud, but that's that's honestly how I felt. Okay, um, I felt like this guy has no clue, and that's because I I knew that's not what what people are really craving and wanting. They want anointed worship music, and I remember I because I as a as a Christian who loved music. Um, I was constantly on the lookout for super anointed worship music. It's just that there was so so little of it, so little of it. And back in the '90s, it was a lot of CCM type music, you know. And some of that stuff I really liked. Stephen Curtis Chapman, for example, I I liked that guy a lot. But it wasn't anointed worship music. There was such a difference to me. Like I would much rather have anointed worship music than 
great Stephen Curtis Chapman songs, even though I really like a lot of his songs. <laughs> kind of hokey, but I still liked it. Um, and I was I was so hungry for that kind of stuff. And it wasn't that long after that that um, Jesus Culture blew up. Jesus Culture blew up, and I was like, this is exactly what I have been longing for, right? Like this type of live anointed worship music that kind of has that prophetic edge where they're spontaneously singing. That that was exactly what I was craving. Um, And that's because there's tons of well-produced music and and amazing musicians. That's, you know, come on. There's, there's a lot of that stuff out there. And I get it. What, what he, what that Christian music producer was implying he didn't. He never said it explicitly, but that like the level of musicianship in the Christian music world was way below, you know, the secular musicianship, which I'm I don't doubt. I'm sure it's like that, right? Um, but to me, Christian music always had a secret weapon, and the secret weapon was the actual anointing and presence of God that you get in an anointed worship service. Like, there's nothing like that. Like, to from my perspective, and I know it's not like this for everyone, but for me. I would so much rather be in an anointed worship set than be at like, you know, a U2 concert for me personally. I know most people don't feel that way. But to me, there's not even a comparison. It's not even close. Like a U2 concert, and you can substitute whatever huge band it is, to me is a, it's a counterfeit anointed worship service. It's it's like a wannabe to me. It's trying really hard to be. That's how I feel, okay? And I've been to some concerts. They're okay, but to me, it, it's just nothing compared to a really anointed worship service, all right? And, you know, I say that because Christian music really got so fake. <laughs> That's how I felt. I felt like a lot of it in the 80s, 90s, um, even 2000s. A lot of the stuff that you hear on, like, the radio, the Christian radio. I know we used to have radio back in the day. Um, it was just so fake. Obviously, it's not that they're completely fake. It's not like that. What I'm saying is that there is an authenticity that, you know, you'll hear sometimes in secular music. You know, there's times where I listen to secular music and and I can hear the authenticity in what they're saying. Like, this is what I always tell, um, you know, young worship leaders and singers. I tell them, you know, don't focus so much on the way that you sound. That's, it's really secondary. It's not, because a lot of young worship leaders are just, they're, they're insecure about their vocal talent, right? They don't feel like they're, they're good enough vocally and stuff like that. And I'm, and I always just tell them, look, it's so secondary. It really is secondary. Okay. Now, if they're completely tone deaf and they can't sing on key, okay, well, maybe there's a different, you know, maybe there's a different gift out there for you. Okay. That's fine. Um, But for most worship leaders, the issue is not that they don't have the vocal talent, all right? Um, it's not. And that's because there's so many, like the best example of this is U2, right? Um, forgive me, I'm giving myself away as, you know, <laughs> U2 was big in the 80s, right? Um, but for a while, U2 was the biggest band in the world or close to it. And um, the thing about U2 is that their lead man, Bono, I'm sorry, he's not a good singer. <laughs> He's, I don't think he's that vocally talented, right? But I understand why people love him because there's few singers that when they're singing, you get the sense of authenticity, right? And it's not just his singing, it's his songwriting. There's a there's a depth to it that seems like it really comes like from the heart. You know what I mean? And that's what 
that's what moves people in music. All right, music is, you know, real art has to have your heart in it. Real art, okay? Deep art is an artist's heart being communicated through the artistic medium. And so it's the depth of heart connection to the truth that you're trying to convey. That's what makes art compelling, okay? And um, what I'm getting at here is that a lot of Christian music, because there was so much money to be made, I even heard, you know, stories about how a lot of these, you know, CCM bands, Christian contemporary music bands that were famous and stuff like that, like a lot of them, they weren't even Christian. Like they're just trying to capitalize on the Christian music market, you know, and they're just essentially singing lies, you know, like, but I would believe it because when I would listen to a lot of that stuff, it felt like zero anointing. It felt like op- the opposite of anointed. <laughs> okay, man, I feel like this, this podcast is sounding super judgmental. I hope not. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure like there's really good things about that. But what I'm saying is the music, okay? The music is garbage for a lot, a lot of it. Okay. And I say that lovingly to the people that produced it. Forgive me if I'm being judgmental, Lord. Okay, but my only point is to say, to me, it's a very healthy turn on how the entire, how the music industry seems to me that it's, there's far more of an influence of anointed worship music now. I, I really like that, that shift, okay? And what I'm, what I'm getting at is I think that, you know, a lot of these musicians, they became like famous, they became, I don't know, I, wanna say, I don't want to say wealthy, but they made a lot of money, um, you know, making these albums. And there's this, there's this deception that happens to us where we feel like we're successful, like I did it. You know, I'm a model Christian, something like that. And yet there's all of these inconsistencies about the way I feel about God and the church and and doctrine. And you just feel a little more freedom now. Now that I've made it and there's something that feels hollow here, you feel like a freedom to really examine those things. This is all just me kind of theorizing on why a lot of these musicians started to deconstruct. Um, But for whatever reasons that they individually did it, um, they... A number, a prominent number of them did, and and then you started to see a lot of other people. Um, I think just because of how social media is now, and there's just a lot more freedom to express yourself and hear that, and um and so I I've been on you know YouTube and some of these places just listening to these deconstruction narratives because I'm very interested in all of this stuff as a pastor, as somebody who's trying to you know pastor young people in the faith, and. I, I want to address some of the main things that are out there. In a lot of these deconstruction narratives, you're going to hear kind of the same elements again and again, okay? And to be clear, every every person's story is unique. So I'm not saying every single person's story has all of these elements, but usually at least one or two of these elements are going to be part of almost every deconstruction narrative. Number one, feeling like a, a lack of intimacy with the Lord, Okay. And this is the thing is this is true for all of us. Okay. Everyone, in my opinion, every Christian goes through what I call wilderness seasons. Okay. And those are seasons where you feel like the grace of God is not on your life like it once was. Okay. These are seasons in the wilderness. Um, I think every believer goes through seasons like this. Okay. And it can feel like God is far. It could feel like he's not answering your prayers like he used to. It could feel um like he doesn't care about you in the same ways that you really felt his love really strongly in a previous season of your life. I think all Christians go through these types of seasons. And it's part of the story of many of these deconstruction narratives because in the in those wilderness seasons, um, our faith is tested, okay? And, and tested means that it is, is challenged, 
the only reason I bring this element up is because I think it's it's important that we all recognize we all have to go through these challenges to faith. I think that this is not well understood in the body. It's not well understood. Um, we have to go through hard tribulations. We have to go through trials. And when we're going through tribulations and trials, we're not going to feel as confident in the Lord and in the things that we believe before. And a lot of these trial seasons, they are designed to refine us. Okay, they're designed to refine us. All right, so as element number one, going through a type of wilderness season or a season where you feel farther away from the Lord. Okay, number two, um, hell. Okay, almost, I don't want to say almost all, but many, many of these deconstruction stories that I heard referenced hell and the problem um, that people have with the doctrine of eternal torment specifically. Okay, number th- number three, homosexuality, right? It, it not understanding why either Christians or the Bible um, or God um, does not accept homosexuality, does not accept gay people, um, something like that. Okay, so that's number three. Number four, um, judgments in the Bible, like the Canaanite genocide, the flood, um, you know, the Amalekites, the way that Israel destroyed the Amalekites. There's a number of different stories like this, but the general theme of judgment in the Bible. Um, number five, evolution, right? Evidence regarding evolution and the church's rejection of it, okay? Okay, so I'm, I'm going to touch on some of these. Um, this would have to be the world's longest podcast to go into all of those elements thoroughly. Um, and I think what I'm going to try and do is touch on some of those other elements more in depth in the future with dedicated podcast episodes. But what I want to do today is kind of just hit an overview. And I think that there's, you know, a couple things that if I could communicate to Christians that are struggling with a season where they're questioning faith, um, these are some of the things that I would communicate to them. And to be clear, everybody's story is different. So obviously there's no guarantees that any of these things will you know, be compelling. But I think these are important truths for these times, okay? Number one, um, the issue of legalism. I've been I've become convinced that legalism in the church is, man, is so, so destructive. In the same way that lawlessness is, um, you know, most of my life I lived in California, and in California, you're dealing mostly with a spirit of lawlessness, Okay, you're dealing mostly with the spirit of lawlessness, people that don't care about God's commands, you know, that are tempting you to do things that are brazenly sinful, that type of stuff. Okay, um, but if you're in the Bible Belt, if you're in, you know, a certain certain types of churches, and there, um, maybe most of them may fall into this category. Um, there's a lot of struggle on the other side of the spectrum with legalism. Okay, legalism is the having something that has the appearance of holiness but inside it's not holy, but it looks like holiness, okay? And what happens is, you know, Christians become deceived to think that God is like this when he's really not, okay? That's kind of the essence of legalism. And uh, and look, our churches are full of it. <laughs> our churches are full of it. And um, what you hear again and again in these narratives of deconstruction is legalism and a lot of people feel like they're brought up in the church and they're essentially brainwashed with certain teachings and then they're deceived 
they're deceived from either, you know, finding the evidence or when they feel like they do, for example, when they feel like they look at evidence of evolution, like they really study the issue, what they feel like they find is that the evidence was much stronger than they were led to believe by their pastors or their you know, teachers, their Bible say teachers, or whomever, or the even like the, the the books that they read, you know, the Christian books that they read. And um and this is the issue. They feel deceived. They feel like they were deceived. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Okay. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um I mean I'll just say this, even as a pastor, I think legalism is one of the main battles that I am constantly fighting as a pastor. Okay. And to be clear I think it's fair to say I've probably stumbled in a lot of legalism myself, all right? Meaning I've probably, you know, propagated legalism in many ways that I'm unaware of, all right? I think that's fair to say, just in humility, okay? Because we don't understand, I think, how deep a lot of the legalism is embedded into our churches, okay? So let me just point out a couple things on this issue, all right? Church leaders, generally speaking— are not experts on science, right? Generally speaking, we're not. We don't have PhDs in biology and physics, all right? We, we don't have we, the serious study that it requires to be a true expert on these things. And I don't think that's a problem. The problem is when we talk like we are experts on these things, right? And this is part of a general theme where, in my experience, church leaders often venture outside of their authority, okay? They venture outside of their authority. They speak as though they have authority on things that they really do not have authority on. And I completely understand why. (laughs) Because as a pastor, a lot of times people are expecting you um, to have answers for them, right? They're putting their hope for you in you to have answers. And I feel, and I understand the pressure for a lot of pastors. Like what we're doing a lot of times is we're studying scripture primarily, to get answers for people to help them. Like, that's our heart. That's what we want to do, okay? But there's there's a problem that happens in almost any group, okay? And that's groupthink. What happens is, as a pastor, when you're, you know, preaching and you develop a certain culture at your church, and what happens is you get a lot of people saying, that was amazing, wow, wonderful message, wow, that really helped me, what starts to happen over time is you start to become overconfident. <laughs> okay, you become overconfident. And I don't think that this, by the way, is you know just a problem for pastors. I think this is a problem for almost any person that gets in this type of context where they're receiving far more praise than criticism. Okay, I just think it's part of our human weakness is that that stuff starts to go to our head. Okay, I think this is true for everybody. <laughs> It's true for everybody. It's really, really hard to steward um, humility in these types of contexts, right? And so, what I think happens is you get you know all this affirmation, all, and then, and you are teaching all this stuff, not realizing how weak many of your arguments are, not realizing that there's so much evidence against what you're saying, because the any of the people in your congregation that know of that evidence. Um, Either they're they're not heard, or they're not voicing it, or maybe there's no more of those people left <laughs> in your congregation, and and this is why because I've run into this all the time. You know, you you go to, you know, some churches, and 
they're going to say, you know, Calvinism is the devil. <laughs> Calvinism is the devil. They think God predestines people to hell, right? And I'm telling you, there are a number of churches, a lot of churches where you will hear stuff like that. And obviously, if you're a Calvinist, you're like, dude, that's so legalistic. That's so wrong. Well, yeah, but I guess what? I've heard it on the other side too, right? Where it's like, you know, those Arminians, they think they can earn their way to heaven. <laughs> they, they can choose God, right? Like, it, this is, and this is, you know, uh, this is probably the easy exa- example I, I could give, the most obvious example. But there's so many things like that, right? Where when we get into these cultures where we all agree on some of these truths, and then we just start to go overboard on this. So we start to ridicule the other side of the argument. We start to ridicule those that, that don't believe the same way as we do. This is so, so common. And what this produces is a type of arrogance and groupthink and legalism. And the problem is when believers are raised in it, meaning they've never heard the serious version of the other side of the argument, right? And they're raised in it. And they naturally think, oh man, yeah, those those Calvinists, dude, they're crazy, dude. What's our problem? Man, they filled with hate, those people. <laughs> and then, you know, and then what happens maybe later on is they hear some of the Calvinist argument and they go, wait a second. That that makes some sense there, right? There's some sense to that argument. And and then now they're like, wait a second, if they were ridiculing this. What else have I been deceived on? And that's the story that I hear again and again from people who are deconstructing. They realize that something that was treated with disdain and you know, ridicule, they realize there's actually merit to some of that argument. And then they start to go, well, what else was I deceived about? And that feeling, I think there's a lot of truth to that feeling because there is a ton of legalism in so many of our churches, and, to, and I, I have to be clear on this, it doesn't mean that those churches are bad churches. And this is the this is the the problem, because the same church that can do so many great, wonderful things in one area can do really terrible, horrible things in another area. The same leaders that have great strengths in one area can also be doing, you know, really bad stuff in another area and be totally blind to it. And I'm just telling you, that is the state of the church, okay? There's a lot of strength and a lot of weakness at the same time. And what I'm trying to point out here is that this type of legalism, it's 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 widespread. It's widespread. And I say this as a pastor because one of the things that I have been devoted to at, at a young age, relatively speaking, when I was in college, I became devoted to the issue of unity in the body of Christ. And I'll tell you, man, it is just the most impossible thing to do. It's the most impossible thing to do. Trying to unite churches and pastors to work together, leaders to work together, it's so incredibly hard. And it's because largely of legalism. Okay, I'm not saying it's the only issue, but legalism is a huge, huge part of it. Because what happens is you know, we take minor differences and we've been ridiculing those differences for so long in our own sub, you know, subgenre, our own, our own circles of Christianity that, you know, we can't work together with those people. You know, we can't, you know, if they're, if they say something, you know, that resembles, you know, Calvinism, no way, 
Like that's not okay. I'm not okay with them poisoning my my congregants, my people, you know, with that Calvinist, you know, heresy or something like that. You know, like it 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 kills the church, okay? It kills the church, it kills our young people. All right. Look, when we're talking about evolution, because evolution is definitely a big one. I I don't I don't know. You don't know. That's the point. Okay? You don't know. All right. And I just want to lovingly say this to pastors because I've heard some pastors just rail on evolution. And I'm just like, look, I think we have to say we don't know on this issue. Maybe evolution is false. And there are pastors out there that have actually done serious study into this and really have an informed and convicted message on it, right? I, I, I'm not rebuking those leaders, Okay. Because I'm sure there are some leaders out there with that message, okay? But I'm saying I have heard many leaders in the body of Christ ridicule the position of evolution without having any serious study or very limited serious study. Maybe they've read a book or two all on one side of the argument. And I'm sorry, that is not an informed enough position to ridicule the other side. It's not. It's okay to say, hey, on a personal level, I'm persuaded in this direction. This is this is the way I feel about this. But I think we also have to communicate some humility. Like, but I'm not an expert in this area. Like, that's an important qualification. It's an important qualification, okay? Um, and to be clear, I, look, I've read, a, I don't know how many books on this topic, a couple books on this topic, and I've read a number of articles, and I've listened to a lot of YouTube conversations on it. I have no idea. Okay, I have no idea on the issue of evolution. Okay, no idea, and I tell people that. Okay, I do not think that holding to the position of evolution is incompatible with understanding the Bible. Okay, and that's because the Bible. This is one of the principles that I need to communicate. Generally speaking, the Bible is not trying to communicate issues of science. All right, I know this is really hard for a lot of people because a lot of people are going to say, "Look." If the, if the Bible is wrong in the scientific claims that it's making, then it's not the truth. And so, of course, it has to be correct on its scientific claims. And I would agree with that. What I'm saying is I don't think it's trying to claim those scientific claims. All right? When Genesis is talking about that God created the earth in six days, I do not think we need to interpret those days as 24-hour days. I'm sorry. Like, the sun and the moon are created on the fourth day. Okay, the text itself, to me, seems to suggest that it is not referencing 24-hour days in the way that we understand them in the 21st century world, okay? It's it's talking about a day as a period of time, but the way we we infuse it with scientific meaning, I that's the point. I think that's what is driving many people away. It's not that you can't be like, hey, I, yeah, I, I assume that there's six 24-hour days. That's fine. But when we're challenged on it, when we are really analyzing that question, were the, were the days 24-hour days? I don't know how people can stand up and say, I'm absolutely confident that is there were 24-hour days. I know this for, for sure because there's no verse in the Bible that says each day was 24 hours exactly. <laughs> right? If that verse was in the Bible, okay, let's stand on it. All right. 
That verse is not in the Bible. And that's the problem. There, there's What we're really doing is we're passing down traditions of Christian interpretation, holding on to them as though they are the word of God itself. Does that make sense? That is the problem. All right. It's fine that for hundreds of years, we assumed the days were 24-hour days. That's fine. Okay. The point is we can't, we have to be honest and say, but the text itself does not specify that. And so if the text itself does not specify that, then we don't have to hold on so tightly to this type of interpretation. Okay? And again, I don't have a problem if you're convicted, if you're if you feel strongly that the days were 24-hour days. That's okay to me, all right? Just don't ridicule the other side that is convicted likewise in another way. All right? Don't don't ridicule that side or demean them and say that, you know, they don't value the Bible, <laughs> you know, or something like that. That is some type of legalistic judgment that I'm telling you is driving away so many people because you're deceiving them if you do that, okay? If you do that, you're deceiving them, and it's not an outright lie per se, but the point is that you're you're not being honest with your lack of knowledge. You're not having humility in this area, okay? So that's all I'm going to say about evolution, okay? I Look, I, th- I think it's an area worthy of study. I really do. I think it's an area worthy of study. Um, but look, from the research that I've done, and I don't know if I added up all the hours of my study, you know, maybe over 100 hours. <laughs> you know, I don't know. But I don't feel anywhere near qualified enough to speak authoritatively on this subject. Okay, there are other subjects that I do feel qualified to speak with authority on, okay? And what I'm doing when I when I when I take that type of position is I'm placing a bet, understanding that I'm going to be held accountable for those words at the judgment. Okay? I I try to be careful with that, right? In the spirit of, you know, I think it's James where he says, "Brothers, do not let many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall incur a stricter judgment." Dude, that scares the heck out of me. <laughs> I think I think the point of that is that should scare us. Right? It doesn't mean that we're scared to preach if God has called us to preach or to teach. It means that we have a fear of the Lord that tries to remain in humility so that we're not teaching outside of our expertise. Right? We're not trying to teach authoritatively outside of what we really have authority to speak on. This is difficult for all of us, okay? But this is my loving warning to the body of Christ, right? Let's let's try and have some humility on some of these issues, okay? Um, now, when it comes to homosexuality, man, I think that this is the great testing of our time period. I'll, I'll simply say this about the homosexuality issue, right? In my opinion, you need to understand Marxism in order to understand homosexuality. I know it sounds totally... Does, that doesn't seem like it should logically flow. Right? Like, what does Marxism have to do with homosexuality? In our time, it has everything to do with it. Because it's not an issue, really, of homosexuality. It's an issue of identity. Okay? That is the issue. The underlying issue when it comes to homosexuality today is identity. All right? Meaning, is your sexual orientation or your same-sex attraction, is that intrinsic, is that core to who you are as a person, okay? That's really the debate that's being played out, and that has everything to do with Marxism. That's what Marxism is all about. It's about tribal identity, group identity, and how it's 
how we view people according to their group identity. And that's why when Christians say that homosexuality is sinful, it's not just a certain type of behavior that we're condemning, it's people that we're rejecting. Does that make sense? That is the larger debate today. It's one of the reasons why I've been so outspoken on Marxism as an ideology. Okay, I think the lack of understanding concerning Marxism by leaders in the church is opening so many doors to all this kind of stuff because we don't understand the real debate that is that is going on here. Okay, understanding group identity is essential. It's the reason why people like Jordan Peterson, who is not a pastor, <laughs> okay, but he is speaking so much truth to so many millions of people around the world, and he's compelling because he's able to talk about the underlying issues that most pastors in the church today are totally ignorant of. And because of that, they're not hitting the mark, okay? They're playing, in in many cases, they're playing into the same games. Like when all these Christians were posting black squares on their Instagram places in support of, of Black Lives Matter, you understand they're being played, okay? They're being played. Because what they're doing is they're being deceived into thinking that they need to support a Marxist organization and a Marxist motto in order to show acceptance and love for black people in America or something like that, okay? But they're lending their voice to a Marxist cause without really understanding what they're doing. Does that make sense? And this is the, you know, the trap that many Christian leaders have fallen into when it comes to all this stuff on identity, all right, my recommendation for every Christian at this point is you have to understand Marxism. Jordan Peterson is a phenomenal resource right now, okay, to understand it because he studied he studied a lot of this Marxist stuff significantly, and he talks about his testimony why because um, when he studied you know the Marxist revolutions of the 20th century, he thought could how, how could this happen in our culture, right? And um, and it is exactly what has happened. And that's why he had the courage and the conviction to defy, um, you know, the mandates that were coming down on him personally, right? When he was a professor, you know, he defied the, I, I believe, the the ruling or the edict of the the school he was at about needing to use transgender pronouns. It, that's kind of what initially brought him into the spot into the spotlight, because um, he was like, no, I'm I'm not going to do that, and it's because he understood that this was really a Marxist tactic that had been used extensively in the, throughout the 20th century. He understood why it was happening, what the significance of it was, and why it might seem like something small if I use these transgender pronouns, like at least, you know, make these students happy and whatnot. But he understood the larger implications. And and this is the problem for, I think, many pastors, they don't understand the larger implications, right? If you play into the Marxist game, if you define love in the way that the political left wants to define love today. If you use that, if you bring that understanding of love into your biblical theology, all right, it's going to cause lots of problems. We need to attack the Marxist, the Marxist ideology at its root. And it's it's rarely happening. In fact, in in most churches, they're they're trying to stay out of it. Because and and what that's a sign of is they don't know how to effectively engage this. Okay? No, we need to hit it at its root. If we destabilize Marxist ideology at its core, right, then we're not going to be dealing with the same, you know, issues regarding homosexuality. Because again, at its core, it's an issue of identity. 
Are we rejecting people of their identity? Can and you know, pastors will try to emphasize this. No, I'm not rejecting a person. I'm just saying I believe homosexuality is is sinful according to the scriptures. You know, and then the person will you know, and the people claim, no, you are rejecting the person, and then the pastor will go, okay, well, I better not talk about this issue at all then, right? Why? What's happened? Because you don't understand why are they interpreting your saying that homosexuality is sinful as a rejection of people. Well, it's because of the underlying Marxist ideology. And you haven't you haven't fought against that. You haven't destabilized that. That's what you have to do as a leader today. Okay? <clears throat> All right. The, and the last thing I'm going to address um, is hell. Okay? Because, again, this is in very common in many of these deconstruction narratives. All right. All right. I think our doctrine of hell could be wrong. <laughs> I know this is, I know people are like, Pastor Dennis is the one deconstructing, <laughs> but I'm not. Okay. I've, I've, I've been concerned about this for years at this point. Um, and I haven't moved at all in my, um, you know, convictions on any of these issues. I've pretty much been in the same place for the past, I don't know, seven years, six years. <laughs> right? I've been here for a long time. Um, and I've, you know, I'm, I'm not close to abandoning faith in Christ. I love Christ. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see at the day of judgment. But I'll simply say this. Um, because when I went to seminary and I studied the doctrine of annihilationism, I was shocked. Okay, I was shocked. This was back in 2013, 2014, somewhere around there. I was shocked by how strong the biblical evidence for it was. Okay, I'm not I'm not even talking about, you know, the philosophical or logical rational reasons why it might make more sense. I'm talking about the biblical evidence. I was shocked by how strong the biblical argument was. And the reason why I was shocked by it is because I had been a leader in the church, a pastor in the church, um, for a long time, and I had never heard a credible argument for annihilationism. Let me just say, there's something really wrong there. There's something really wrong if I can study tons of theology, read all kinds of Christian books, um, and never have heard a credible argument for this important of a doctrine in all of that time, something is seriously wrong, okay? I've done three to four studies now on annihilationism, and I am convinced that it has an incredibly strong argument, okay? Now, I'm not a committed annihilationist because I do think there are fairly strong arguments on the eternal torment side, okay? But it is nowhere close to ironclad, okay? It is nowhere close to ironclad. And the reason why I'm saying that is, why isn't there a robust debate in the church on this issue? Okay? Generally speaking, there is not, okay? Generally speaking, there is not. And the way that I know that is because, you know, the times where I have talked, tried to talk about other leaders about this issue, there's almost an immediate assumption that this is some type of heresy, okay? And this is a huge problem. This is a huge problem. There's no question that, well, I don't want to say that. For, for me and for many other pastors, there's no question that you get more than the question of why does God send people to hell, meaning to eternal torment, all the people that have never heard of him, that have never been evangelized to, all the millions of people, why? How is it fair that God eternally torments them? That is probably the most common question you get as a pastor. And again, every church is different, so I'm not going to say every pastor 
shows that. But come on, every pastor has had to have had that question asked to them. And the reason why the question keeps coming back is because the answers we're giving suck. All right? The answers we're giving suck. And that should be obvious at this point. It should be obvious in the church. But the problem is that the only ones who are dealing honestly with that question are non-Christians. Because the Christian leaders are not dealing honestly with the question. All right? The answers are not good. Okay? And I felt that way for a long time in the church. All right? Even as I held to eternal torment, my position was, hey, I don't, I don't really know why. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me either. It doesn't seem good to me either. But it's what the Bible says. So we have to trust in God's morality more than our own, which I think there is a lot of truth in that, right? If the Bible is clear about something, then we do need to trust the scriptures above our own sense of justice and righteousness. That's true. The problem is that the Bible is not clear about this, okay? And I say that very strongly at this point. The Bible is not clear about eternal torment. And I feel deceived in the same way that many of these deconstructionists say they feel deceived by how the evidence, and I'm talking about the biblical evidence, has been misconstrued, okay? It is not a clear argument, okay? There's a very strong argument for annihilationism. And as a leader in the church, I am saying this, I think it is essential that we have that argument, that we have honest discussion and debate on these issues, that we really start to examine the issue of annihilationism, okay? I think it is essential right now. On a personal level, that's what I've been doing for the past six years now, okay? Because I think it's really important to take a look at both sides. And what I mean by that is I don't feel any kind of pressure to go to one way or the other, all right? Meaning I don't need to make a decision. I can live in the place of uncertainty where I say, hey, I'm not sure on this issue. Why? Because it takes time. What I have to do whenever I'm re-examining a position is I've got to reread all those Bible passages, you know, and try and interpret it from a different interpretive lens and see if they fit together well, see if they fit together better. And I will say, since I started doing that, I think it makes the fit the scriptures fit together better. All right, under the annihilationist paradigm. Okay. So that's why I tell people I'm undecided at this point in my life. I definitely lean towards annihilationism. I think it has the stronger biblical argument at this point, and it has the far, far stronger um, rational argument. It makes way more rational sense. In fact, much of the, you know, the anger that atheists have, that deconstruction Christians have against God, against God a lot of that anger would be eliminated if annihilationism were true. Okay, and to be clear, I'm not saying that we should embrace annihilationism just because it would make atheists less angry at God. Okay, that's not what I'm that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that I don't know of a single Christian, maybe one or two, that can say with sincerity that they believe that the doctrine of eternal torment is good. All right, is righteous, it makes sense to them. And it's because those people that feel that way, because <laughs> they have weird, you know, they have weird senses of, of right and wrong, generally speaking, okay? All right, the vast majority of Christians, I'm talking probably ni- over 99%, that if you really peg them down on this issue, hey, why is hell good? Why is eternal torment good and right and just? Nine Over 99% will not be able to give an honest, satisfactory answer, in my experience, 
Okay. And again, I mean, maybe that's just the crowd I've, I've, I've been around, but come on. No, it's not. All right. Because it doesn't logically make sense. Again, I think that a, an honest and a, a good position is to be like, hey, we can't understand everything right now, but maybe when we get to heaven, we'll, our eyes will be open and we'll be able to see why it's good and right and just. I think that's a fair, that's a fair position to hold and one that I held for many years. Okay. But there's a problem if almost none of us can see why this is good and right and just, okay? There's a problem there. And at the at the least, it begs the question of could annihilationism be true? And so that's my invitation because my concern is this. What if we have been misrepresenting God for thousands of years at this point? What if we have been misrepresenting God for thousands of years? I'm talking about the majority of the church, because there's always been a minority of annihilationists, okay? John Stott, well-respected Bible teacher, was an annihilationist, okay? Um, Francis Chan has publicly said that he is open to the annihilationist position, okay? Um, Michael Heiser, who recently passed away, well-respected scholar, has said that he, I, I believe he says that he leans or accepts the annihilationist position. I don't know if he's sure about it, but he definitely leans strongly in that direction, okay? In fact, I've, I've seen many more people say it, but I know why people are hesitant to say it, because as soon as you say it, what happens is there's an entire group of Christians that immediately starts to slander you. That's the issue of legalism. That's the issue of legalism, okay? Because here, here's the issue. What people naturally assume is that if you question eternal torment, what that means is you're sliding down the slippery slope to humanistic you know, relativism, you know, and pretty soon you're going to become a liberal Christian, or if you're maybe you're already a liberal Christian for many of them. Okay, that's the type of legalism that I'm talking about. It, I'm talking about, you know, that type of I'm not willing to actually take the person at face value. What they're actually saying, my worldview can't make sense. Doesn't fit together that you could have a strong biblical conviction and question a doctrine like eternal torment. What I'm saying is that's legalism. Okay, that is legalism. It's the same thing that I've heard from a number of deconstructionists when they say, when they talk about how devoted they were to the faith, how serious they took their walk with God, how convicted of sin they were, how much they realized the love of Christ and had a change of heart. And then later on in their life, they wander away from the faith. And many people, many Christians then go, you were never saved in the first place. That is legalism. Now I understand because that is a Calvinist point of doctrine where you have to say that, right? Where it's like, well, their only options are they they were never saved or they were, you know, or they're destined to come back to Jesus or something like that. But my point is that when we can't take people's testimonies honestly and we have to put, you know, we have to assume things about their hearts because we can't actually have a real dialogue with them because we're constantly making judgments about them. That is legalism. And yes, I do think some of that comes from our theology, our wrong theology. But it's wrong. It's wrong. It's a false judgment, okay? And I, I think it is causing a lot of damage in the body, all right? And I think we're at a place in American history right now where there is a restructuring happening, where God is shaking everything that can be shaken. I think in the past, you know, three years, there has been a mass shaking in the body of Christ. And that is where a lot of the deconstruction narratives have come out of. In, in 2020, a lot of them started to come out 
I think there's been a mass shaking going on. I think that there was a pandemic that caused churches to have to decide whether they were going to stay open or close, and many of them closed, and many people lost faith in that season, and church attendance dropped by major numbers over the course of the pandemic. I think all of this is a shaking that has happened in the body of Christ. I think we're in the midst of a shaking, and the hope that I have is this, and it's a real hope. It's not just like you know hopeful imagining. It's a real hope. I think God uses shaking, that shakings are allowed by God to shake whatever can be shaken. He's trying to shake off the things that have been destroying the church, that the cancers, the poison that has been in the church. He's trying to shake it off the branches that bear no fruit, the parts of the church that are not bearing fruit. I believe this past number of years have been a shaking to try to cut these things off of it so that the next season could ha- be incredibly fruitful, so that the church could bear even more fruit. That is the hope that I have. I think some of the things that I'm talking about today are part of the branches that are not bearing fruit that the Lord wants to cut off the tree, okay? I think he wants to cut these things off the tree, and I want to lovingly submit these things to any of the people that are listening to this podcast, right? Because I think there is truth in these deconstruction narratives that we need to address. We need to address the real criticism of the church that is being revealed in the stories of many of these who are departing from the faith. I am not saying that it's all because of the church. Okay, it's not. All right. But I think it does expose weaknesses in the church that we have had. All right. And that we need to shift in this coming season in the body of Christ. All right, we need churches that are full of the presence and the power of God, that have real holiness, not fake holiness, not the pretending of holiness, not holiness that's just on the outside but not on the inside. I want the real thing, okay? I want real faith that's not some kind of inauthentic certainty in certain doctrines, okay? That's not real faith, okay? Real faith is not certainty in the area where you have no business being certain, okay? Faith is having a strength of relationship based on actual true understanding of the ways of God and the person of God, all right? That's what we want in the church. And the reality is there's a lot of fakeness that's been all around. It's not just in one part of the body or the other. It's all over the church. There's all of this fakeness, and I'm concerned with it, and I believe the Lord wants to cut it off in this season. We want an authentic holiness. We want authentic relationships. The church is supposed to be the place where we have the closest, strongest relationships, and yet the truth is this, that the church is the place where the relationships are quickest to break off. The church is the most divided. There's the most pain, right, from divisions in the body, church leaders not being able to work together for a million different reasons, okay? We need the Lord to come and bring healing in this area, to bring re- true reconciliation, true understanding, all right? And I think we've we've got to we've got to get a lot of this legalism out of the church. All right. Hope that makes sense. God bless you guys.